All right, we've got a lot to get through <coughs> tonight, of course. Um, homework for last time was Romans 11, Ephesians 3, I believe, 2 and 3, yes, and Colossians 1. And so we're going to try and plow through them and even get beyond that. I don't know if that's going to be possible. Um, are you all taking notes? Are you all, you know, I'm dishing out a lot of information and it's a shame if you don't take good notes because you're not going to remember it all uh, otherwise. What we were dealing with last week was uh, Paul's kind of change of focus in Romans 9, 10 and 11 in dealing with the question of Israel and God's faithfulness to Israel. That becomes important because he spent the first eight chapters dealing with the gospel, what the gospel is, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, dealing with the fact that everybody's under wrath from 118 through to the end of chapter 3, then dealing with the fact that God's grace uh, comes in through faith. That's chapter 4 with the examples that are given in chapter 4. Chapter 5 then kind of is a summary there in the first um, 11 verses is a summary of where he's got up to that we stand within grace. That's the environment in which we stand if we have faith in Jesus. Uh, that doesn't mean that everything's great. It, that actually means that we also share in his sufferings as well. Uh, then he moves on to uh, his most theological um, subject, which is from 12 to 21. He deals with the fact that we're either counted in Adam or in Christ. And we haven't, this is not a systematic theology class, so I haven't really gone into that. Um, but you are either counted in Adam, and in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15:22, or in Christ all shall be made alive. Okay, and that's basically a summary of uh, of those chapters at the end of chapter five. Chapter six moves into uh, sanctification. Okay, so the, the fact that we are in Christ, incorporated into Christ, means that uh, we are to walk in the power of Christ, particularly, and we'll get back to this, the power of his resurrection, okay? Walk in newness of life, Bill says. That is extremely important, as we will see, because uh, if we're to walk in the power of his resurrection, obviously Christ has to be resurrected. If Christ has to be resurrected in order for us to do what a Christian has to do, I hope you can see that you cannot have Christians before the resurrection of Christ. Do you see that? Now, it doesn't matter if your theology doesn't gel with that. It's just a fact, okay? We saw when we were looking through the Gospels that Jesus does not preach, neither do his disciples preach, uh, the Pauline Gospel of uh, believe in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross, uh, that he was buried and that he rose again from the dead and has ascended to heaven. That's not what they preached. That was a secret that Jesus told to his disciples and they didn't get it. 
Okay? In fact, one of them, when he, he thought he got it, said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never be. Do you see? That doesn't sound like somebody is enthusiastic about telling people that message. It means that uh, that's a message he doesn't like. He doesn't recognize. Do you see? It's very important that we just allow the Bible to say what it says and if that cuts across what we've learned maybe in Sunday school or, you know, in reading some books, then so be it. The Bible is the authority. Um, in chapter 7, he deals with the problems of the flesh that we all have, the two principles and so on that we have dealing with that in this life. And in chapter 8, he deals with the fact there's no condemnation in to those who are in Christ Jesus and talks about the Spirit. That's the Spirit chapter, Romans 8. And doesn't just talk about the Spirit adopting us into the family of God, which it does, which he does, <clears throat> but also how the Spirit will transform the whole world when we are transformed. Okay? And I tie that into the fact that uh, that's the hope that we're looking forward to, that's the hope of the created order, and that takes us back right into the creation project. Do you see? So we need to see ourselves in that journey because that's that's how Paul depicted it. At the end, we're safe in the grace of Christ Jesus. And chapter 9, therefore, is, okay, so all that's true about the church. What about Israel? Because he talked about Israel in chapter 2, you know, about the fact that they had the law, but uh, they weren't following it. And, uh, but he, he also had Jewish examples in chapter 4 of Abraham and also of David. And so, what about the covenants? What about all of the, the agreements that God made with the nation of Israel? That's a very important subject and it's very important to Paul because Paul is very concerned about his fellow Israelites. So we saw in chapter 9 and chapter 10 that if we read uh, Paul's concerns not as dealing with the church but now dealing with the promises made to Israel we will understand it more accurately. What leads people to understand chapters 9 and 10 to an extent but particularly chapter 9 wrongly and apply it to salvation and then get some doctrines from it which uh, Paul is not talking about uh, is the fact they're applying it to the church and applying it to individual salvation. If you apply it to individual salvation you come up with Calvinism. Okay. Now, uh, whether Calvinism is true or false okay, and I'm Calvinistic in my leanings but whether Calvinism is true or false, Romans chapter 9 is not the place to prove Calvinism because that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about how you get saved. He's talking about Israel's election. Do you see? That's very important. Isaac is the focus there. Those through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
So we got through to chapter 10 and at the end there we saw how Paul deals with uh, quotations from the Old Testament and we'll kind of pick it up there in Romans 10. And we saw here that um, verse 19, I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Okay, so so other nations are going to be brought in, used by God to provoke Israel. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Um, who are the ones that did not that, that uh, did not seek God? Uh, Probably, again, this is uh, Gentile nations. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, um, this is Israel's recalcitrance. This is their, um, their unbelief. The stubbornness of sticking by the law. Oh, and they're still in that. They're either in unbelief and kind of atheism or secularism or they're still clinging to something that cannot save them. They're missing their Messiah because of this. And um, um, there are heretical groups that, uh, and teachers that are actually making infiltrations into the Christian church as well through the Messianic um, church movement uh, that, you know, they give their own translations of the Bible and so on. And some of these are Karaite Jews who reject Jesus as Messiah. And, uh, but they, they kind of come in using the same um, avenues of the Messianic uh, Judaism sort, you see. Because there's this, this, uh, this idea, oh, you're Jewish and you're Israel, so you must know something special. Do you see? And they kind of play on that. And they call Jesus Yeshua, and they call Paul Shaul, and so on. The New Testament never calls either of them that. But, um, but they do this, this stuff. And the good, the good ministries that are ministries to Jews do it for the right reason. They're ministries to Jews. Do you see? Those that are ministries to Gentiles and still do it that way, I think, have big question marks over them. And you have to watch them, especially because you do get these other um, groups coming in on the wings of this movement and teaching falsehood. Okay, But by the same method, we're Jews, we've got the inside line, this is you know, something you wouldn't know as a Gentile. Okay, and then they come in with their false teachings that way. So, um, so what we what we have here is God going out to the Gentiles, just as He said He would in the Old Testament, just as James said, using the Amos quotation in Acts chapter fifteen. But Israel being a contrary and disobedient people. Okay? 
contrary and disobedient, even to the present day. Um, God is now not dealing, folks, with the nation of Israel. Okay? Um, it doesn't mean that the nation of Israel is not important to him. It's covenantally important to him, extremely important to him, but it doesn't mean he's dealing with them right now. They are left in unbelief, and that's what chapter 11 is going to tell you. Okay? Right now, he's dealing with the majority of saved people who are Gentiles. He's dealing with the church. The church is mainly Gentile, okay, in its complexion. I mean, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, uh, it's Gentile. And both, both. Um, Romans is written around about AD 58, around there, and by that time the church was overwhelmingly uh, Gentile. Uh, certainly in uh, the Mediterranean area, you know, of uh, modern day Italy and so on, Asia Minor you know, would certainly be that way, in Greece. Yes. <clears throat> and that's important to, to understand and comprehend. Uh, so that you understand why he's not quoting a bunch of Old Testament prophets about the land given to Israel, because he's writing most of the time to Gentiles. So why would he bring that up? But he will bring up covenant passages that are in the Old Testament that mention salvation coming to the Gentiles. Do you see? He is going to do that. This is what... Yes, this is what Paul is doing. And he's also going to bring up passages which talk about the unbelief of Israel. Okay? Because that's that's, uh, predicted too. So, we're ready for chapter 11. Chapter 11 is where Paul really uh, answers the question, what is God going to do with his covenant promises to Israel as we find them in the Old Testament? So let's follow his reasoning. We'll go uh, verse by verse through this entire chapter. Once we get to the uh, olive tree metaphor, particularly we'll start kind of around about verse 11. Uh, we, got, we need to go slowly and kind of follow the logic. But... Um, We can go pretty quickly up until we get there. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite. So his people there are Israelites, Jews. Of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Notice he, he knows what tribe he is. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. That word foreknew is an important word. It doesn't just mean that God saw into the future and, you know, kind of knew about it. It means that God kind of drew a circle around. Um, I wouldn't, you wouldn't really pronounce, uh, translate it predestined. But foreknew means that he knew them in a real sense, even though uh, they weren't in the present. You see, God knows uh, in the future just as much as he knows in the present. I know that's kind of weird, but it's true. It has to be true. And again, it's not systematic theology class. We could go into that 
a lot, but it has to be true. Otherwise, God is always learning things. And we can't have a God like that, okay? So, um, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. So, this is Elijah. I'm preaching through the life of Elijah at the moment. And uh, we were at this passage not long ago. But this is Elijah, and this is after that great uh, meeting between him and the prophets of Baal, and, you know, he was a victor. And then he runs down ahead of Ahab to Jezreel, and he stands outside the gate. Maybe he's out standing outside the gate because he's expecting a big revival, you know, and they're all going to come out and say, here's the man who stood for God. Maybe, maybe not. But the news he gets is not, thanks so much, you know, for standing up for the truth. It's Jezebel's out to kill you. Yes. So he legs it into the wilderness and um, you, uh, you hear the voice of God eventually coming to him. What are you doing here? And then he, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, you know, and he goes into this pity party thing, doesn't he? Which doesn't answer the question, but it says, you know, I'm the only one left. All right. Um, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That didn't come straight away. That came after he was commissioned. And it's kind of an, almost, it seemed like a kind of afterthought for God. Oh, by the way, yes, as far as your pity party is concerned, there's 7,000 people like you. And then we hear about Micaiah, an example of, of one just like that, Micaiah, who is in prison because of his faithfulness to God. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. What election of grace? This is what chapter 9 was about. The election. Do you see? Chapter 9 is about the fact that there's always an election. There's an election of Israel and there's always a people of Israel. Okay? That's why he had to go into that stuff in chapter 9. So there's always a remnant. Do you understand now why he can say not all Israel is of Israel mm-hmm. and not mean Gentiles? Because oh, okay. yeah. he's talking about the remnant. This is a well-known doctrine in the Old Testament. We covered it. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. Why is he making that point? Because chapter 10, he said they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And they're going about trying to establish their righteousness, and they're missing the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Do you remember that? So, he's reminding us of his argument here. Now, we can take a verse like that and deal with the Jehovah's Witness with it. Okay, and apply it to the way we come to faith. Okay, but in this context, that he's talking about Israel. Do you understand? What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. 
but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. The elect of who? Israel, in the context, yes. Do you see? But uh, many people are going to read, when they say see elect, they're going to read church. Okay? But in this context, he's not talking about the church, he's talking about Israel. The elect have obtained it, the rest were blinded. So he's going to be dealing with the blindness of Israel in a lot of this chapter. This is the present time, verse 5, which means there are Jews who are saved. He's one of them. There's a bunch of disciples, apostles, who are also Jews who were running around, you know, preaching, who are also part of, of that. There are, of course, there are people being saved. The Roman church was probably started by a bunch of Jews who came from uh, Pentecost and Acts 2. We know there were some from Rome that were there. So, it was primarily probably Roman. Then with the Claudius expulsion in AD 41, uh, the, the Jews were, ex, uh, were, were kicked out. And then it appears as though the, the uh, Gentiles got saved. Uh, in the meantime, when the Jews came back in dribs and drabs, back to Rome, it was a predominantly Gentile church, but it was a mixed church. You see, that's why you have both the Jews and Gentiles being spoken to in the book of Romans. So, um, he's now going to go on to this blindness. Verse 8, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. That's a judgment, by the way. That's, um, that has happened to them because they've not believed. Okay? David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Notice that word, a recompense. You recompense somebody because they deserve it. Okay? Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Uh, this is, you can see, a, a um, punishment for unbelief. Is, is table a figurative symbol of um, their gluttony, their greed? I mean, how... Because it says... Uh, it could well be, yes. In that, in that, uh, that's from a psalm. It's from Psalm sixty-nine. Um, so it could be. I mean, Isaiah chapter three, for example, is a passage where he's talking to the daughters of Zion. Remember, the prophet's talking about the daughters of Zion, who, you know, they like to uh, feast and they like to recline and they like to, um, you know, dress up and, and all this sort of stuff. And then it says that they're going to be kind of stripped bare and they're going to, you know, all that's going to be taken from them. Uh, Hosea talks about the same thing as well. So, um, this is a condemnation that is being brought against the unbelief of the nation of Israel. They rejected Messiah. You might even recall that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, he was asked, why 
do you speak in parables? Do you see? What was his reason? He actually uh, quoted the Isaiah passage here. Um, Why? Because seeing they do not see. Do you see? They don't want to believe. So it's a judgment against them, you see? I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Who's the they? Well, Israel, the unbelieving Israel, okay? You see how he's logically now got us onto unbelieving Israel, which is where he needs to get us, because that's what he's been dealing with in chapters 9 and 10. Certainly not. For through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Okay, why am I emphasizing their, their and them? To be annoying? No, because I'm, I'm trying to uh, highlight to you that Paul here is deliberately giving us a them and us uh, dichotomy here. Okay? He's given us an Israel and Gentiles dichotomy in this passage. You've got to observe this, folks, otherwise you won't follow his argument. Okay? So if you think... And, and, and is this believing Israel? No. Okay? So this is unbelieving Israel. So you've got to keep this in mind if you're going to follow the argument. Let me go through it. If you've got some questions, uh, let's have them at the end, okay? Just because I I may well address your questions as I go through. And if I don't, I'll just pretend that I have answered them already and we'll move on. (laughs) All right. Verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles, you Gentiles, Romans, but also us today. I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Here he's taking up the mantle of the instructor of the church. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. That was his great motive in chapter 9. That was his motive in chapter beginning of chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 10 too. Uh, that is in what has been already said here about the provocation. I will provoke them by a nation. Yes? Uh, that's chapter 10 verse uh, 19. I'll provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Yes? So you see how his argument is all kind of put together? You have to observe the argument, you see, uh, in order to kind of to, to see where he's going with this. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, now this is the second time that the word world has been used in this passage. It was also used in verse 12. What does the word world mean in this context? It means 
the Gentile nations generally, okay? And because of the way he's using it, look at it, look at what he says. Uh, in verse 12, riches for the world. You see, that's got to be salvation in this context. And uh, then again, in verse 15, reconciling of the world, salvation. So again, the world here, is, can you see how it's being used? It's being used as for saved Gentiles, but from all over the known world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Okay, so he's, he's now used this idea of a future acceptance, which I can't spell. Okay, he's going to use different words to de- describe this, but it's always in the future. What would their future acceptance be? Okay, um, you can either read this as acceptance into the church. You see, because they get saved and um, are in the church in the future. Or you can read it in connection with the covenants that he's spoken about and the promises that he spoke about in chapter 9 and the election that he spoke about in chapter 9 and the them and us um, dichotomy that he set up here. I'm going to argue that if you say this is an, some kind of end time salvation of Jews who then are incorporated into the church, you're reading this wrong. But that is how most people read it. Okay? And again, we've used this horrible smear term, replacement theology. Only people that don't like replacement theology use that term. Um, It's kind of like Calvinists calling non-Calvinists Pelagians, you know? Um, They wouldn't call them that themselves and it wouldn't be true uh, either. But um, but in in one sense, they're not replacement theologians, but in in some important senses, they are replacement and they just don't see it because they are kind of blinded by their own theology, by their own deductions uh, into thinking that's not what we're doing. And the reason they do that is because they don't take the Old Testament covenant seriously. Okay, they're not. That's not important to them because it's all because the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament. That's kind of the presupposition, and therefore we don't have to worry about that. Do you see? Um, so, future acceptance for Israel. Okay, let's see how he argues this. <clears throat> for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. Okay, now the lump here is, uh, it's just the whole bunch of it, okay, all the rest of it. If you, you offered the first fruits, okay, to God. And if that was good stuff, then you knew the crop was going to be good. So if the first fruits is good, the rest of it's going to be good. If the first batch of soup is good, then you're going to have a good batch of soup, okay? If I made it, none of it's going to be any good. But, <laughs> but, um, 
So you know ahead of time, do you see? That's one little illustration. Now he's going to move, in the middle of a sentence, he's going to move to a different illustration. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So, root and branches. Okay? And if some of the branches were broken off, so we have um, branches that are broken off, okay? And you, well, who's the you? Verse 13, Gentiles. you Gentiles, do you see? And you, being a wild olive tree, that's the first time he mentions the olive tree, he kind of like merges into his illustration. Do you see that? He doesn't say, oh, this is an olive tree illustration here. And here's the, so, and he kicks off from that. He kind of moves into that gradually. So, you, oh, okay, he's talking about an olive tree here. So, you being a wild olive tree, okay. So, you have olive, this is an olive tree illustration, alright? And another thing that we have to take account of then is a wild olive tree. Olive, olive tree, okay? Now, by the way, I don't think he's being particular about um, specifics here as far as, you know, he's going to use this uh, an olive tree, you're an olive tree, and but you're not the branches. He's going to call them the branches in a minute. But what he means is by you being a wild olive tree is that you are branches from a wild olive tree. You'll see that in a minute. Okay? And if you if if I get to the end here and you're not satisfied, uh, you can put your hand up, okay? And we can go back. But you can see he's merging, he's giving you more details, so the picture is is emerging as he's going into it. But you should be able to follow the argument fairly easily. You being a wild olive tree, verse 17, were grafted in among them. Okay, can you see? I mean, it's not like he's, he's uprooted an entire olive tree and stuck it into a, another olive tree. So can you see he's using the, you are an olive tree for branches. You were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root. So, I hope that you can see that the root is separate from Israel, from the them. Do you see? Read it again. Verse 17 were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. They are, Israel is not the olive tree. Israel is participating in the olive tree. And the Gentiles are now said that they are participating in the olive tree. So the, the identification of the olive tree is all important here. If you think the olive tree is Israel, 
which is what nearly every replacement theologian says, then you graft the Gentiles into the Israel, all of a sudden you have a transformation of Israel. And the church, which is predominantly Gentile, becomes the new Israel. Do you see? Replacement theology. So that's why you've got to read carefully. Now, are you following? Is everyone following this? Okay, good. And John will kick himself for not being here tonight. But that's his own fault. All right. But you're recording this, right? I am recording it, but yeah, I'll probably keep it from him anyway, just for being, <laughs> just for spite. Yes. All right. Yeah, I thought being an observer of a boring meeting was more important than that. Anyway. All right. Let's move on. You can say that because you're a pastor. Right? I know I can. Okay. I know. Yes, I do. Yes. yes. So, so I'm still wrapping my understanding around something here. Yeah. Well, hold on a minute. I'll tell you what. Okay. Connie, let's move a bit further on and see if things get cleared up. Because as I told you, Paul is moving into the illustration. The illustration is kind of uh, uh, getting more and more defined as he moves through the verses. All right? Okay. So I'm not saying that by if I get a few more verses into this, you don't have the same question, but I'm saying just uh, trust your intuition as you're reading. Okay. Be confident, okay, that, it's, that maybe the verses are going to answer your question. Let's see. Verse 18. Do not boast against the branches. Who are the branches? Well, who are the people boasting? Or told not to boast? The Gentiles. That's very good. So who are the branches that they are boasting against? Israel. Do you see? All right. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. The root supports you. Is the root then Israel? No. Is the root the church? No. The root's something else. And notice, by the way, also in verse 17, the root and fatness of the olive, olive tree, you've, the root and the olive tree are the same thing. Do you see that? The root and fatness of the olive tree. So he's using root here for the whole of the trunk of the olive tree, the main, you know, thick stuff. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. This is not individually. This is kind of the church theologically, or Gentiles theologically. Um, Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. That's right. Because of unbelief. Not because of necessity. But because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Paul's established that in the first eight chapters. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches. Okay, so now you see Israel is called the natural branches. And we've got some... um, Well, I'll just let it kind of unfurl here. 
he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, that's judgment, toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness. He's not talking about you getting saved, you being a Christian here. Okay? Don't use this to say, oh, you know, I could lose my salvation. He's not even talking about that. He's talking about Gentiles generally, the church generally. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Why? Because God treats people the same. It's not one rule for Israel and one rule for the church, which is what replacement theologians do, by the way. They have one rule for Israel. Israel get rejected and kicked to the curb for the same unbelief that we would have had if God had had grace on us. Well, why didn't we get kicked to the curb then? Well, because we all get kicked to the curb if God does not do something to save us. But he hasn't done something to save national Israel yet. But he has promised in the Old Testament that he will. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. I'm just going to go a little bit further and we'll come back. For if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, now he's talked about the wild olive tree, you were cut out of it. And were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. What's the cultivated olive tree? Okay, this root here, okay. How much more will these who are the natural branches or who are natural be grafted into their own olive tree. Okay. So we've got to fill in a few gaps here, don't we? We know who the natural branches are. Who are the natural branches? Okay, Israel. Okay, they're broken off. So what does it mean about them spiritually? They're unbelieving. Okay. So we'll say unbelieving then. Because there's a remnant. Very good. You see, yes. You see, you can you can follow this, but you have to kind of go slow and, and think through it. It's kind of heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the root is the cultivated olive tree. Okay, and it's a it's called the root and fatness. Okay, so this is all one thing. This is the. Uh, the one that the natural branches belong to. The natural branches are Israel, which means they are not the olive tree. Okay. He says, you lot, you come from a wild olive tree. So they're not the wild olive tree. What are they? They're branches from the wild olive tree that are grafted into this olive tree. So you've got branches into this olive tree here which belong to it and you've got wild branches that are grafted into this olive tree that kind of, you know, that's God's grace. Do you see that? Because they were broken off. Because these were broken off because of unbelief. 
So you get the impression it says, you will say them branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. If they would have accepted the new covenant right away, would they have been broken off? Well, no. You have to answer no. Right. So then would those others be grafted in? No. So what's your next question? What's your next question? Why? <laughs> no, that, no, come on, be more theological, John. You're doing well here. Your next question is, well, how can that be? You know, because does that mean that the church, does the church mean, does this mean the church is some kind of afterthought? You know, this failed, therefore we're moving to plan B. You know, that's kind of what it might sound like. But what are we forgetting here? Remember this diagram that I've kept putting up for you uh, of the Old Testament? Okay, covenants. Okay, and then you've got the cross. And then you've got the resurrection. And then you've got the second coming here in the kingdom. And then you've got this gap. Okay, Jesus was not to, his king, not to set up his kingdom immediately. He knew about this. He knew the church was coming. We didn't. But he did because he's God. So none of this is a big surprise to him, which means none of this is a big surprise to him. But just as God offered, the the kingdom was offered to Israel and they rejected him. Jesus was offered to people, to, to Israel, and they rejected him. The gospel is offered for people today and they reject it. Okay? Is it a well-meant offer? Is it well-intentioned? Yeah. Or, of course it is, unless you're a hyper-Calvinist and then it's not. Then, um, I hope that you can see God, because he knows the end from the beginning, you can't treat God's knowledge as if it's like our knowledge. You know, that we're coming to knowledge and it's kind of a sequential thing. God's knowledge is comprehensive and because it's comprehensive, yes, he can offer us blessings. He can tell you or me to pray. Okay, and, and say, you know, why don't you have anything? Because you don't ask, do you see? Well, whose fault's that? Ours. But, does God know you're not going to ask? Of course he does. Do you see? Because he knows the end from the beginning. And that's the same thing here. He knows that, that Israel were going to reject Christ. In fact, it was even prophesied. So then he knows about the church. That also reflects the holiness of his nature. Mm-hmm. That he's unchanging. Yes, it does. You know, it would be completely hypocritical, hypocritical if it didn't go through that process. Yes. Honestly. Yes, it would. Yes, this is not a big kind of pantomime uh, for God's own pleasure. Okay? This, this involves, in fact, one of the key things that you'll find in Scripture is that God does not bypass the human instrument. You know, we're made in the image and likeness of God, which is why God does not kind of come through and rend the heavens and, and just shake his fist and, and threaten and intimidate people into submission. Okay? He doesn't often boom from the heavens. I mean, just a few times. Exodus 20 and Mount of Transfiguration, a little bit, you know baptism of Jesus, if anyone else heard that. I mean, not much. But what does he normally do? 
He says to you, go and tell him. Yeah. Well, why don't, why don't God tell him? You know, why does he send somebody else to go and do his work for him? Thus says the Lord. Because he respects the human being. Do you see? That he's made. That's important when you think, why doesn't God just intervene and do things? Do stuff. It's because we're made in the image of God. He's told us what to do, but we don't do it. Do you see? You actually, when you start looking at that motif, it comes up again and again and again. Um, so, verse 24, For if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. There's the word mystery there. We're going to meet it again in, a, in Ephesians. The word mystery is something that was not revealed, though it was known by God, but was not revealed until God decided to reveal it. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. I love the King James there. It says wise in your own conceit. That blindness in part. Do you remember the blindness bit? Okay. Verse 8. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see. Paul's, he's on the same track. Do you see? It's us that want to get off the track. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. So Israel are the natural branches, the Gentiles, I didn't identify them, but uh, these are Gentiles, saved Gentiles. Are the wild branches, yes. Do you see? Until, until, that's an important word, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, who's God dealing with now? The yes, he's dealing with the Gentiles. Um, so, I've been called anti-Semitic by, <laughs> by people, which, you know, if you've been following me all of these courses, you'll know I'm anything but anti-Semitic. <laughs> but I've been called anti-Semitic for saying this. If your ministry is focused on Israel, and you're always talking about Israel all the time, and you're not focused on the church, your theology is wrong. I mean, your, your focus is wrong. Do you see? Because God's focused on the church, on the Gentiles. He's going to be focused on Israel later on. So that's why it's important to say God has not given up on Israel. Okay? But as far as if in your day, I mean, we're going through the Bible, so we're mentioning Israel a lot because it's, there a lot. Um, but in our day-to-day church life, in our day-to-day Christian life, you know, there are ministries given over to just talking about Israel. And, you know, when I encounter those ministries, I want to say, that's not where God's at. God's focus is on the church. Why is not your focus on the church? Yes? 
Um, you ever thought about that before? So, yes, it's very important that in understanding the Old Testament, we understand the covenantal nature of God's promises to Israel. Because he's coming right to that in just a second. But we also need to, to focus on the Gentiles, the mainly Gentile church. Which is another reason, because the New Testament does do that, mainly. Paul's letters and John's letters and Peter's letters. Because the New Testament does focus on that, mainly. Um, that you don't have the land promises dealt with. Because God's not dealing with Israel about the land promises. Do you see? So it makes sense, doesn't it? You don't have to change um, interpretative horses when you cross over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Do you see? Which is what uh, a lot of church scholars and interpreters have done down through history. You know, they have... um, What they've basically done is that they have, well, their first horse is, is the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Their first horse is they're riding the New Testament with their interpretation of the New Testament. And then when they go back to the Old Testament, they do a Roy Rogers and they jump horses and they change their interpretation because they have to, because they're reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament and you can't do it that way. Because the Old Testament doesn't talk about the church. It talks about Israel. Paul, is it, is it correct to say that the olive tree at the top is God's grace in Christ? Not there yet. Not there yet. Okay. But very good. I mean, you're, you're having a go. You're having a stab at it. But uh, you're at least separating um, the olive tree from the two peoples, which is is very important. And you're actually pretty close to the target there. But I'm not there yet. I'm still at the end of verse 25, the fullness of the Gentiles. If you've been following the argument, and I know it's a tight argument, what's the fullness of the Gentiles? Think about this. What is the fullness of the Gentiles in this? Having using this illustration, what is it? Yes, and producing fruit. Well, yeah, but and what else has got to be done with this? Is there any other branches got to be grafted in? Israel. Israel. So then he's going to turn to the natural branches again. Do you see? All right, that's good. So, now he's dealing with mainly with the Gentiles and when all of the Gentiles, the wild branches have been grafted in, then he's going to turn back to Israel again, which is what Paul's talking about. Now, if you grasp this, can you see how he's addressed the question now of what's God going to do with Israel? He's not forgotten about them at all, but at the moment he's dealing with the church because Israel's an unbelief. Um, so verse 26 well verses 26 and 27 
And so, summarizing, all Israel will be saved. Well, hold on, doesn't that contradict what he said about the remnant? No, because not all Israel is of Israel. Do you see how it all goes together? The true Israel is the, always the remnant. So all true Israel will be saved. Now where does he go? He goes to uh, two prophecies. Uh, the deliver, deliverer will come out of Zion. Uh, where's this one located? Where's this verse located? Is where? Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Okay. Good job. Okay. Isaiah 59. The deliverer will come out of Zion and that he may turn away ungodliness from when you see Jacob, folks. Jacob is either the guy or usually it's Israel, the country. It's never the church. For this is my covenant. We're back. We're on covenant ground here. Do you see? That's why God is going to go back and deal with Israel because He's made covenants with them. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What's the covenant that deals with the taking away of sins? The new covenant. Okay. All right, I've got too much stuff on the board now. Can I get rid of this? Yeah. All right. So if you want to see how a replacement theologian or covenant theologian, we'll just call him a covenant theologian because that's what they call themselves. Um, How they argue, they will always misinterpret the olive tree illustration. Always because they will always make the root an olive tree Israel and then they'll graft the Gentiles into Israel and then voila, what do we get? The church is the new Israel. Okay? And they will not see anything. They will, they will not think they missed a beat, which is why we went so slowly. Yes? I have to ask you a question because there's still something in the form of my understanding. The root then you talked about you know the two different graftings that happen with Israel and believing Gentiles. The root is what? It's the actual trunk of the tree. Okay. So if I using one of my wonderful drawings, okay, it's this. Right. Okay. It's the stock of the tree. That's it. And then you got the branches that are in it, you see? Okay. And it's the branches that are the two peoples. You've got the wild branches, right. which are the Gentiles, and then you've got the natural branches. Yes. Right. So the tree is not either of the people groups. But it's what the people groups are fed into, as it were. It's what they, they rely on. Is it the full potential of what? I mean, because the tree can't live without 
I'm still I'm still struggling here. Where are you struggling? I'm struggling with precisely naming what the tree is. What we would call Well, we haven't got there yet. Although I'm 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 right I'm right on the verge. I'm right on the verge. We're trying you on double barrels, and you still yeah. haven't answered. So I know, I know, but that's because Paul's going to answer for you, the the inspired Paul. Okay. Can I ask a question? Yes. Back to the mystery is the mystery the same as Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine when he talks about the secret things? No. Um, in that context, it's just saying that as far as because um, in in uh, chapter 29 through to well 30, you can even go go through to 32, maybe 33 of Deuteronomy. He's talking about God's plan for the future for Israel and the fact that they will reject Him, but then uh, particularly Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 8 how he's going to regenerate them in the latter days. And then in chapter 29 talks about the land is going to be, is covenanted to them. Sometimes that's, that's called the, the land covenant, but I don't treat it as the land covenant because it's just part of the Abrahamic covenant anyway. Do you see? So um, it's talking there about the fact that God knows a great deal more and he's decreed everything. So... Um, it's a very important thing. The secret things uh, uh, remain known only to God. But those things that are revealed by him are ours. And we keep them and we treasure them. But we're only going to know what's revealed. That's what that verse is, is telling us. <clears throat> Alright, so we're on 26. We're going slow. The deliverer will come out of Zion. Where's Zion? Israel, yeah. It's usually uh, a, a um, metonymy for Jerusalem. And he will turn away ungodliness for, from Jacob, Israel. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. New covenant. Okay. Look, you made me put something else up there. And I just cleared it. So... So, he quotes a New Covenant verse. Um, well, I think it's verses actually. So let's le- let's look at these verses. Let's, the, so the first one is in Isaiah fifty-nine. Are we right? Okay. 59.20 So let's turn to Isaiah 59. You're talking about the search, verse 16, about the, the search for a man who would be an intercessor, an intercessor who would bring salvation. Okay? But as somebody who, who needs to have his own righteousness, verse uh, 16 and 17 Uh, then recompense upon the enemies verse 18 verse 19 
so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. This is an end times prophecy. I don't think I used this prophecy in, uh, in the second course. But this is an end time prophecy about something that is familiar and that is that the, the armies of the world will come against Israel at the end. Okay? Surround Jerusalem and God himself will go out to fight for them. That's in Zechariah. <clears throat> so this is another thing. Then it says what? The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor the mouth of your descendants nor the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord from this time forevermore. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, remember, that's the thing, um, subject of Peter's first sermon in Acts 2. The Spirit of God falls. And so he says, this is what Joel said. Okay, Joel 2, which is about the Spirit of God and all of that paraphernalia, which actually didn't happen in Acts 2, but he's focused on the fact that this is, hey, this is the, the stuff that the prophets have, have talked about. Do you see? And chapter 3 we saw that he, he still, you know, talking about the days of restoration, days of refreshing from the Lord. He's still in a very Israeli setting, you see, looking for the, the kingdom promises. So, this means, therefore, that when we're talking, when he's talking about uh, the nation of Israel, and he's talking about the answer to the question about what God is going to do with Israel, he brings in the new covenant. Why doesn't he bring in the Davidic covenant or the, the land and descendant aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. Why not? We've covered this. Some of you, some of you weren't here, so you can have a good go at it. But, but if you get it wrong, that's fine. If everybody, if other people that have been here in a second get it wrong, then yeah, then we'll have to say some prayers for them or something. <laughs> Yeah, but why not? Why didn't he? Why didn't he just throw in the Davidic covenant then? There. Why the new covenant? What's so special about the new covenant? Yeah, but how? Okay. So you get two points. Um, <laughs> So, Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant, okay? Land, descendants, okay? And blessing for the nations. I mean, also, Abraham was to become a great figure, but these are the main things. Okay, the Davidic covenant. All right, so, king... And kingdom, throne, you know. Priestly covenant, okay, Zadokite, 
priesthood and uh, temple. Um, I'm missing one. What am I missing? Okay, Noahic covenant, yes. Okay, so Noahic covenant, obviously dealing with the, the environment, the, the world itself. Okay, and, and creation. What, why can't these covenants, which God entered into unilaterally, why, why hasn't he just fulfilled them? Why, you know, what's the big delay? So now you're talking about something salvation. Like Where do you get salvation from? Here. So if you look at new covenant passages, you know what you're going to find, and what we what did we find? Don't break my heart and tell me you don't know. Okay. What did we find when we looked at new covenant passages? Isaiah chapter 11, folks. Okay. Wolf lying down with a lamb. You know that stuff. Uh, Micah 4. Come on. Because Jesus hadn't come yet. Isaiah 62. Hosea 2. Do you feel like you... What's the question now? What I'm trying to get out of you guys, and again, you weren't at all of these. Because he needs... Is what was I emphasizing when we went to we got to the new covenant? I was emphasizing the fact that the new covenant just doesn't just talk about salvation of the soul. Yes, and it talks it takes into itself all of these other covenants. Do you remember Ezekiel thirty six and thirty seven? You don't, do you? All right, you remember Jeremiah 33 and how I pounded the table and said this is really, really, really important? Don't remember that either. You remember the pounding? All right, let's turn to it. Come on. We are going to go to Ezekiel first, okay? 36. Okay, so this is going to be a whistle-stop tour. Ezekiel 36. All right. <clears throat> well, we'll start here. I'd like to start around about verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord. Notice that. The nations shall know. What's part, what, what do you think that could be alluding to? No, 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 you get, you're pushing ahead here. The Abrahamic covenant, what part of the Abrahamic covenant? That's good. There we are. Good, you see? Yeah. It's alright, you still get your two points because, yeah, you were the only one who put in effort in a few minutes ago. Alright. Well, we knew he was a hard man and we didn't want to get the wrong answer. Uh, so, says the Lord God, come on, let's just move on. When I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. That's a bringing them out of captivity again. 
Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will put a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, who's the you? Israel. Israel. To walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments to do them. Then you shall dwell in the land. Abrahamic covenant. What did they need to do in order to dwell and possess the land? They needed to be saved. Yes. So you see, why doesn't, why can't they, uh, the Abrahamic covenant be fulfilled upon unbelieving Israel? Yeah, of course. Well, what brings restoration? The new covenant does. But notice here, he's talking about new covenant blessings, but he's talked about uh, the blessing on the nations and he's talked about the blessing of the land. Two aspects of the Abrahamic covenant because the Abrahamic covenant is mixed in with the new covenant. Or it needs the new covenant. Uh, Chapter 37 Oh, no, no, actually, uh, look at verse 35. So they will say, this land was, that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Do you see? Mm-hmm. Paul in Romans 8. The creation groans, waiting, okay, to be released from the bondage of... Um, what is it? Futility and so on? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. The creation itself is in bondage. Do you see? The land will become like the Garden of Eden. Why? When? New covenant. When will the wolf lie down with the lamb? Which kind of focuses in with the creatures and that's under the Noahic covenant. When Messiah comes and brings righteousness and salvation. New covenant. Chapter 37. I'm just ignoring Robert. Um, Verse 21. Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. Guess which one that will be? They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant. Covenant. Which covenant is that? Yeah, kind of surprise, surprise. And they shall all have one shepherd and they also shall walk in my statutes and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land. Which covenant? And I will, would I have given to Jacob my servant where your fathers dwelt and they shall dwell there. They, their children and their children's children forever and my servant David, Davidic covenant, shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary which which priestly it's all contingent on salvation which is supplied by the new covenant and this is why where Rick will skip um, Jeremiah 33 but go to Isaiah 49 this is why Rick is so close I just 
wanted to make sure before I said kind of yes to him that 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 we were on the same page here. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Okay, that's what we've been reading about. And to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you may show my salvation to the ends of the earth. New covenant. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, for he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth thank you to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners go forth to those who are in darkness show yourselves they shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall also be on all the desolate heights blah 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 they shan't hunger or thirst nothing will hurt them Um, who's the covenant there in verse 8 If you look earlier, you'll see it's the servant. And the servant is Christ. Christ is the covenant. Remember I said Christ is the new covenant? Which is, uh, I'm not sure, the reason I hesitated on your answer is because I wasn't sure that you were there, you were here for that particular lesson. So you may have been just kind of stabbing in the dark. But you were right, but um, the new covenant is Christ. These covenants do not have the means of their fulfillment within themselves. They need the new covenant to be fulfilled. The new covenant is Christ, whom we believe in, but Israel doesn't yet believe in. God is dealing with the Gentiles right now, but when, when he's dealing with Israel, new covenant language. Who's the new covenant? Jesus is. Okay, so Israel will believe in Jesus. And then these covenants, which are held in abeyance because of their unbelief and rejection of Christ, God is now obligated or will be obligated to fulfill literally. Do you see that? It is beautiful. It is. So everything is comes through Christ. Your salvation, my salvation... Uh, Israel's salvation, the Gentiles that are going to go out to, we have not really gone there uh, in the New Testament, but we will. Uh, The renovation of the whole planet, it all is channeled through Christ. Do you see, the whole story of of, um, the Bible is Christological. But not in the horrible way that that, uh, some people say you find Christ in every verse of scripture, you know, he's, he's a preaching topic in every passage of scripture. No, he's much more integral than that. He's absolutely central to the whole plan of God. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. 
Oh no, yeah, we should we should take we should take the points off. He's spoken about the new covenant, which is salvation. The new covenant is Christ, so we're right there, okay. But it doesn't necessarily mean, although it could. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the root and the, the olive tree itself is the new covenant. Because we're not just talking about salvation, we're not just talking about the new covenant on its own, replacing all the other covenants. We're talking about the new covenant and what the new covenant ushers in, and the new covenant ushers in the things that have been promised to Israel. Remember chapter 9. To whom... Let's have a look. Instead of misquoting it, let's just read it. Chapter 9... Verse 4, Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, not covenant, covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises. So it's covenants, I think, that we need to deal with. Yes, wrapped up in the new covenant. Okay, brought to completion through Christ, but still those covenants... uh, are not Christ themselves. The Abrahamic covenant is not Christ. The Davidic covenant isn't Christ. The priestly covenant isn't Christ. He's the new covenant through whom these other covenants uh, are brought about. So, um, we could answer this. Paul is not really concerned about identifying you know, what it is specifically. He's, he's already made his point. But we know that the olive tree is not the wild branches. We know it's not the natural branches. So we know it's not the people groups. It's something that the people groups need to be in. Is it Christ as new covenant? Possibly, but not alone because there's more to Israel's promises than one covenant. There are covenants. So I think that the olive tree is the covenants. And if you want to, and if you want to follow the covenants back, the Davidic covenant kind of harks back somewhat to the Abrahamic covenant. The priestly covenant, somewhat, you can find your way back to the Abrahamic covenant because he set them up as a nation to worship him with a priesthood. Although that becomes a little bit later. Um, so the Abrahamic covenant is central to this and yet I think it's also wise to, to bring in the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant too. It's, in other words, it's those covenants that God's made with Israel. How does the church, how is the church brought into this? Well, he's already explained the church is brought in to the Abrahamic covenant, which is why the Abrahamic covenant is kind of central here, through the third aspect of the covenant. So the new covenant means that the Abrahamic covenant can come to fruition and all three of these things can be uh, enacted, you see? Yeah? Yeah? So you can either say the three covenants together, that's kind of my, because he said covenants in, in 
that's kind of where I go to. Or you can say Abrahamic covenant, because everything is really traced back to the Abrahamic covenant, which deals with um, why the Gentiles also are grafted in. Do you see? So it's it's the, either the Abrahamic covenant, go for that, or um, the other covenants, but crucially, as uh, funneled through the new covenant, who is Christ. Yeah? So, Paul, is there a really concise statement of the New Testament? I mean, the New Covenant that we find here in the New Testament is it, you know, just a really... Um, well, what what are you asking? I'm sorry, I need a bit well, more specification. Because there's specific verses that that line out those three covenants right there. Mm-hmm. Is there a set of verses that just really very tightly lines out the New Testament as well? The New Covenant. The New Covenant. In the Old Testament, I mean, you would go to Jeremiah 31. Uh, 31 through 34. And when we're going to, we are going to Hebrews soon, and you'll see that Hebrews, um, I'm going to get, when I get to Hebrews, I'm going to get at my most, um, what's the word? Where you, you'll, you, the, the hairs on the back of your head are going to, no, not passion. I just mean controversial. I'm going to be my most controversial. And I'm, I'm going to say you can either follow me here or not follow me. Okay, I will do that. But I will explain my reasoning. When I get to Hebrews, I will sh- uh, try to show you that Hebrews is dealing uh, very specifically with the new covenant and identifying Christ as the new covenant. <clears throat> Okay, so let's finish off chapter 11, verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they, Israel, Romans 11, are enemies for your Gentiles' sake. But concerning the election, which is what he's been talking about, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And probably, you know, the 12 tribes and probably... You know, you might throw David in there and so on. Yeah. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That's his conclusion. There's his conclusion. It's because of the covenants that God will fulfill his promises to Israel. It's because of his covenant with us through the new covenant, who is Jesus Christ, who we believe in and who we celebrate with the Lord's Supper. Okay? Um that he's going to keep his covenant with us. We have everlasting life, folks. We have it by grace. Israel gets their promises by grace. Um, The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, remember it's just another way of saying they were um, cut off because of unbelief, even so, these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. 
For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Uh, that's a difficult, difficult wording, but basically he's just reiterating what he's already said, that uh, through the Gentiles, uh, Israel is going to be provoked to jealousy. Do you see? And so, through, even though through, the, through Israel, the Gentiles come to salvation, it's also going to be through the Gentiles, in a sense, that Israel comes back to salvation. The remnant, yes, yes. This is he's he's dealing with the remnant because the doctrine of the remnant is a very, very important doctrine in the Old Testament. Now, can you see why he expostulates in verse thirty-three? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out! And then. Um, you know, quotes the Old Testament, for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For And here's a great summary, beautiful theological summary of um, the God who is behind the creation project. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You want to glorify God, understand that even though this history seems to be going in all kinds of different squirrely directions, and who knows what tomorrow is going to bring. Um, despite that, God's plan is moving forward to an inexorable end. It includes Israel, it includes the, the nations, and it includes the church. Okay, let's move to chapter 16 because we've got loads of time left. Just take a nice kind of deep breath here. Chapter 16, real quick. Was it 16 or 14? Uh, now I'm, I want to, where's that passage? Yeah, there it is, 1620. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Well, it's been 2,000 years. Romans 1620. It's been 2,000 years, but you see, in the program of God, looking at it as a creation program, taking into account the things Paul's been talking about and dealing with here. He's been dealing with covenants, he's been dealing with Israel, he's been dealing with uh, the creation, the recreation ahead. Um, all of this, uh, he's, you know, all of this stuff that he's been dealing with, the real panorama of biblical history, um, he knows, he's confident that, hey, it's going to be in eternal uh, terms, a short time. And God will crush Satan. That means that Satan was not crushed at the cross. Do you understand that? That means Genesis 3.15 is not a prediction of the cross. 
Do you see that? Because it's in the future here. So we've got to look for a time when Genesis 3.15 is going to be fulfilled by the skull-crushing seed of the woman. I think I can find a place in the book of Revelation where that happens. But if I'm not willing to interpret prophecy in a certain way and I want to interpret everything through the first coming, then I'm going to say that the the Satan's skull was crushed, as it were, in uh, at the cross. And that's what many, not all, but many covenant theologians do teach that. That's why I bring that to your attention. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are flying through here. I'm just giving you a couple of passages here to look at some things here. He's talking here about the Lord's table in chapter 10. He's talking here about not giving offence. Everything is of God. And then verse uh, 32. Give no offence either to the Jews or to the Greeks, that's the Gentiles, or to the church of God. Do you see that? He's dividing humanity into... Jews, Israel, Greeks, Gentiles, Church of God. Now it is true, and this, I must note this so because I, I would be remiss not to do this, that the Greeks, the Gentiles, are unsaved in this passage. But he still does recognize, this, does recognize three groups of humanity in that passage. It's just, I just mentioned that to you. 1 Corinthians 15. And with your other hand, Romans 6. So here he's talking about, in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about what the gospel is that he was declaring. And you, know, you all know this passage. It involves the uh, death for our sins of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ on the third day, and the fact that he was seen, do you see, by a bunch of people. Yeah? Yes. And by Paul himself also. And um, he talks about this is the fact, this is the, 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 um, the gospel that he's preaching. Now verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some of, among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's this typical Greek thought. Okay, They thought that the material world was secondary, that it was inferior to the soulish world, the world of ideals, you know, in Plato's thought, um, or, or the world, the ethereal world, in the, the world of, of many Stoics and so on of the time. Uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans and many people from uh, all kind of ancient religions believed that the body itself was, was inferior 
to the Spirit. Uh, people like Aristotle even believed that uh, the soul would would kind of uh, be used, it would use a body and then in the future it would use another body. Do you see? The same person would be incarnated in another body. So the body was secondary, do you see, in their thought. So it's not surprising that in Corinth, which is not far away from Athens, that that is going to come through in their world view, which it does here. They were denying the resurrection because it's the physical resurrection. And Paul's all about the importance of the physical, as is the Christian worldview, and the importance of the physical realm. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Because he said that the gospel that you have to believe includes the resurrection. So, if the gospel includes the resurrection, and that's how we're saved, and that's how the church comes about, do you, again, understand that there cannot be any church before the resurrection? Do you see that? That's my point. There cannot be any church before the resurrection. The church is a resurrection entity. And he continues, Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. But if the dead do not rise and Christ is not risen, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Well, hold on a minute. Why? No, that... It's not necessarily so, is it? Why do you need the resurrection to clear you from your sins? I thought the cross of Christ cleared you from sins. You ever noticed that before? It's not enough for Jesus to die on the cross for us and say it is finished because he'd done his job. Okay, but you need the resurrection because the resurrection vindicates the acceptance, the new life. It, and because it's physical resurrection, it's in with the creation project because the creation project's a physical project. Do you see? Do you're putting it together? Which is why when we become like Christ, the world is renovated as well. Because... The world was made for us. Yeah? So it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust and all that. Ashes you are, or dust you are, and the dust you will return. Because the earth and man are connected. Adam. I mean, it means from the earth. Do you see? So, um, the earth is made for us and we're connected to the earth. So, when the resurrected and glorified Christ comes back to earth and we are changed and we become like him, the earth doesn't... I mean, don't think that the monstrosities that man has built are going to withstand the second coming. There's a lot of clearing up to do, you know, a lot of, of, of bulldozing to be done. Uh, there's a lot of things that need to be renovated uh, the, the wilderness will become 
beautiful again. Because the, the presence of resurrection on the earth, do you see? The resurrected man, woman, will live in a resurrected environment. It's part of the creation project. And look how Paul goes here from uh, the vanity of not preaching a physical resurrection into the, the final project of God. Look how he does this. Um, verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So, he's going to talk about hope. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the first fruits. He's the one. He's the first guy. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There's Romans 5, uh, 12 to 21 in a nutshell for you. Mm-hmm. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. He's the first one. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. What's that? What's his coming? Well, we have to say second coming, okay? Because it doesn't say rapture here. Okay? I'm a pre-tribber, Robert, but it doesn't say rapture, so I'm not going to read that in. Okay. So, at his coming. So, when is this going to come about? Romans 8 hinted at it, you know, the, the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the children of God. When's that going to happen? At the second coming. <clears throat> then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Okay. What does he mean by the end here? One of two things. Both of them fit pretty good. The end is the end of this human history. The end of newspapers full of bad news. The end of natural disasters and diseases. The end of corrupt politicians. The end of of ungodly people writing books like, um, you know, The God Delusion and things like that. All that's going to be gone. The end of other religions, basically. Although there are some passages in Hosea, in sorry, Micah 4 and so on that indicate there will still be people who will be ungodly and will be uh, idolaters somewhat, even in the, in the kingdom. But... Um, that's, I think, um, probably what it means. The end of this, uh, this part of the creation project that we're in right now. It could also mean the end as in the end, the consummation. Okay? If it means that, then it's easy for a person to say, okay, the end is just kind of straight after his second coming, do you see? So there's no kingdom afterwards which is what, again, many amillennialists do that. So I think it's, it's probably preferable to say the end, it's the end of this, this wait. Because he does reign, notice verse 25. 
till he has put all enemies under his feet. That's not, he's not reigning now. He says he must reign in the future. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. That's a quotation. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. God, the Father, is not under Christ, the man. Do you see? Now when all things are made subject to him, that's Christ, then the Son son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Again, theologically it's kind of tough swimming, but (coughs) what we have here is, you need to understand this is talking about the incarnated Christ. This is not a, a... theological proof text for the subordination of the eternal son to the eternal father do you see that's actually being taught in evangelical circles today by influential people Um, this is talking about the incarnated Christ the one who resurrected he became a man as a man do you see he still has work to do the creation project What has he got to do? We're told here. um, He must reign, verse 25, till he put all all enemies under his feet. Okay? For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he put, you know, and so on. Um, what's, What's happening here is that Christ's reign in the future is for the defeat of all of the enemies of God when that's done then he delivers up the kingdom to the father do you see what will the kingdom be think of Daniel 2 and a stone cut out without hands coming in smashes and spreading out all over the globe it's the world it's the planet do you see because he'll rule the whole planet so at the end of the millennial reign, and I'm kind of pushing ahead here and being a bit naughty, but at the end of the millennial reign, when Christ has, has put down all of the, uh, the enemies of God, including right at the end, when Satan gets a whole bunch of them to come up against Jerusalem, do you see? When that's all done, then he presents the kingdom to God. Does that make sense? the creation project will be complete when he does that. Right? So all of this stuff that we've been talking about from Genesis 1 will be completed when Jesus, after he has reigned on earth and cleared all of the enemies, presents this world to God. That's the end of the creation project for this creation. What happens to it? You've read the the end of the Bible. Revelation 20. Yeah, this one gets blown up. (laughs) Okay, then there's a new heaven and a new earth wherein is no more curse. 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 You ever wondered why it says no more curse? Only Only when you have the new Jerusalem and new heavens and new earth. Because this, this, creation is cursed God cursed the ground 
And so what I teach is, and there's more to, to do on this, but what I teach is that Jesus, when he comes back, the resurrected Lord, uh, the Prince of Peace, through his presence, he, um, he controls the curse of this world, which is why there can be streams in the desert, which is why things can bud and, and bloom and become like the Garden of Eden again. Okay, because of his presence. But it doesn't come inherently from the world itself. Do you see? Because it's cursed. You might not accept that view, but to me it makes sense of why there has to be a new heavens and new earth. Because it's not completely perfect until it does what God wants it to do. And this earth can't. Do you see? But it, what it can be is it can be, it can be polished up, it can be fixed, it can be made to run really well again so that God's pleased with it. So As a project. It has to come together so he can present it to us. Yes. Yes. And again, that's why I call it a creation project from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 20. It's, it's a project. It's not, he's not given up on it and he's steering history towards that conclusion. If you want the, you know, the, the cliff notes, it's Genesis 3.15. Which is the fact that the, uh, you know, he will bruise your heel or crush your heel, you'll crush his head. Okay, that's, that's it. Do you see? Now, there's more to go, but I hope that you understand. Um, this earth is going to uh, be influenced by the power and the presence of resurrection. But it isn't eternity. It, re- it has to, eternity has to move in a, another direction where there's no curse. And this earth is cursed. And then we'll get back to that, and you don't have to accept that completely, but that's my my idea, yes. So, when you talk about Jesus reigning, when he uh-huh. comes back, this is during the thousand year reign, is that correct? Yes. Okay. And then, I, I was reading this this morning, I just want to know if this, I have a question about this, but it's from Second Peter 3.10. But, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Yes. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Yes. That's so that's after, and then after the defeat after, of Satan. Yes, and he's cast into the bling of Yes, earth. that's talking about the end of the that's creation after project earth. after it's been okay. um, delivered up again by Christ to the Father. And remember I was talking about this. This talks about subordination of the Son to the Father, doesn't it? In what way is Jesus subordinate to the Father as a man? Because this is the the wonder of the incarnation. The wonder of the incarnation is that the second person of the Trinity became one of us. That's what Philippians 2 is talking about, remember? Took upon himself the form of a servant. That's astonishing. Yeah, astonishing. But see, as a man, he's subordinate to the Father. 
as the second person of the Trinity, he's not. But he's the God-man. And this is, this, what we've been reading is all about the physical environment of man. And because he's a man, I hope you can see that he has to be subordinate to the Father in his work on behalf of man. Uh, this other thing too, we didn't get to Ephesians, but <clears throat> that's why uh, John, when your wife asked me how many more, I wasn't quite sure how to answer her. Um, but think about this, alright? In fact, who did Colossians 1? Who read Colossians 1? Okay, two points, two points, two points. Alright, good, alright. Let's go to Colossians 1. Not to the whole of it, just to a couple of verses. And um, I'm going to show you how that tie, this ties into uh, the incarnation. Verse 15. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn in his resurrection. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. Alright, let's get this stuff down. So, we're talking about Christ. In fact, we'll just... We'll give him his full name. So, we're talking about Jesus Christ here. And the way that Jesus Christ is, is usually presented is they died on the cross. Okay, but there's much more to it than that, folks. Okay, so... Uh, Creation is through him. Okay? But it's also a gift. It's for him. Now, if it's for him, that means it's a gift. Do you see that? Are we alright with that? Okay. Um, Now, he upholds all things and in him the whole shooting match consists, okay, or coheres, hangs together. He's talking about the incarnated Christ, the man, the God-man, okay? This is a physical world. Let's just look at the work of Christ here. So, um, this world is made for him. There's really the key right there. So, the one for whom this physical realm is made, okay, becomes a man. 
He's incarnated as a man in his world. Why did he become incarnated in this world? To die on the cross for yeah. us. Yes. To die in it. Isn't that astonishing? Why does he die in it? Because of other physical beings, us, who are made in the image of God. Okay, He is the image of the invisible God. We just read it there. So, um, is that it? That's the end of the story? And you know, No, because he's also raised, resurrected in it. And according to what we've been studying here, when he returns, he will rule it. Can you move out of the way so I can see? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So I've remember the new covenant thing. He's the new covenant through everything, through which the whole story, kind of the whole covenant story, passes through and 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 flows through and comes out of. Literally, doesn't change. The only thing that changes is is the people that are cleansed in order to receive the benefits of the covenants. The covenants themselves mean what they say. So he's central to that purpose, covenantal purpose. Now here's another part of his centrality. Do you see? This is more theological, uh, systematic theology. Now he's central to the whole purpose of creation. Because it's his, and he redeems it, and he will uh, he will beautify it, and it shouldn't surprise you that the one who died in it and was spat at, he's going to rule on it. That's the reason for the millennial reign, folks. Not he's not ruling in heaven. He's going to rule on this earth. This is the earth he was killed in. This is his. Why wouldn't you think he would reign on this world, on this earth? On what is his? And, and then that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where it says that he delivers up the kingdom to the Father. The Father gives it to him. He's going to give it back to the Father. And that's the work of love, do you see? How's the world going to be renovated? Through the Spirit. Okay, so you have the Trinitarian work of God in the whole of the um, plan, this is the creation project. And you know what? I know we're at um, Colossians here, but um, we're, we've come a long way through the Bible. We haven't had to spiritualize anything. Mm-hmm. Have we? We've just had to be patient and read the Bible and believe what it says and believe that if we are scratching our heads, you know, when we're halfway through the Bible or three quarters of the way through the Bible, that God knows more than we do. And we'll just have to be patient and wait for him to answer our questions. But what we won't do is jump ahead of God using our default independent reasoning to come to a conclusion that satisfies us and then make the Bible conform to it. 
we don't have to do that, so let's not do it. And I have to, I have to finish that. It's a nice way, a nice place to finish. But we didn't get to Ephesians 3 again. Um, so, if you, homework is to read Ephesians 2 and 3 again for the third week in a row. Uh, and then, uh, I think I'm, yeah, I am available next week. Um, I also want you to, um, I want you to read First and Second Thessalonians as well. But you'll have to remind me that I said that. Okay. First and Second Thessalonians. Because we've got some loose ends we've got to tie up. And I've also, we've also got to look at this issue that Robert uh, spoke about there, the rapture. Okay, we've kind of got to at least um, ping that a little bit and, and um, see why there is an argument about that. Uh, from there, we'll go into the book of Hebrews.